This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, and this episode is Remove CO2 from the Air, One Megaton at a Time. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. On February 23, 2021, Regina Mayer, KPMG's Global and U.S. Head of Energy, connected with Steve Oldham, CEO of Canada-based Carbon Engineering LTD, to introduce Carbon Engineering's direct air capture technology. Welcome to Current Conversations, our KPMG podcast. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you very much for inviting me. So you're the CEO of a company called Carbon Engineering. And from what I understand, your technology removes carbon dioxide straight from the atmosphere, not just existing emissions. So if I understand this right, your technology can help us erase the damage from the past as well as help us decarbonize for the future. Tell me more about that vision and how that your solution can accelerate decarbonization. Sure, yeah. And I, I like to start with, with a simple analogy that certainly when I joined the company, it made me understand how carbon engineering's technology can, can really make a big impact on addressing climate change. So what I want you to do is think of the atmosphere as a bathtub. We all have a bathtub in our house. And imagine that you know the plug is in and you're filling the bath full of water. And that's what happens with the atmosphere. The bathtub is the atmosphere. And the taps that are running are all the sources of CO2 emissions, slowly filling up the bathtub and filling up the atmosphere and taking us to a point where we have too much CO2 in the atmosphere and we have a climate problem. So if that was the bathtub in your house, you would obviously, if you saw the bathtub was overflowing, you'd turn off the tap. So when we address climate change, Our problem is we have literally billions of taps putting water into that bathtub, putting CO2 into the atmosphere. So to stop uh, the the level of water in the bathtub, CO2 in the atmosphere from rising, we need to turn off every single one of those taps. And that's really very hard to do. And it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of effort. The alternative solution, and we all know this, we've all got a bathtub is you pull the plug out. And when you pull the plug out, you drain the water that's already in the bathtub so that even if some of the taps are still running, the volume of water in the bathtub, the volume of CO2 in the atmosphere is reduced. So carbon engineering's technology is the plug. By providing a plug in the bathtub, a plug in the atmosphere, we pull CO2 straight out of the atmosphere And that way you're able to offset some of your current emissions, but you're also able to address yesterday's emissions. And that's the very simple way of thinking of of direct air capture, which is the name of the technology we we develop. I love that analogy. I'm visualizing my bathtub, which is planet Earth. But I want to understand more about the underlying technology, even though I'm not a scientist or a PhD, I'm really intrigued by how this actually works, taking the carbon out of the atmosphere, out of the air we breathe. Tell me more about the underlying technology. Yeah, so the first thing to say is it's, it's a very difficult problem. 
Um, CO2 in the atmosphere, although it creates an enormous climate problem, it's only 400 parts per million. So that's hard for us to envisage, but 400 parts per million is the equivalent of a single drop of ink in a swimming pool. So imagine trying to pull a single drop of ink out of a swimming pool. It's, it's difficult to do. So when you're developing a solution for um, trying to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere, you need to touch a lot of air because the more air you touch, the more CO2 you can pull out. So our solution uses chemical processes, chemical reactions, and we have at the very front of our process large fans that pull air through a, a PVC membrane. Across that membrane, we drip a chemical. And through a, a basic chemical reaction, it's a non-hazardous chemical reaction, we trap a large percentage of the CO2 within that chemical as the air passes through that filter. So then the rest of our process, you've now got a chemical at the bottom of that, of that PVC filter, which has got a lot of CO2 in it. And then the rest of our process pulls the CO2 out as a separate gas. But importantly, we also regenerate the chemicals that we use to capture the CO2. So our process acts like a closed loop, air in at the front and CO2 out of the back. And then within our machine, we remake our absorbents. So once you've captured that CO2, I understand that the products, the end products that you can make could be a, a form of a liquid fuel for existing transport, you know, for cars or for planes, or it could be a sequestration storage option. What outcome dominates and, and how do you see those product streams evolving from here? Yeah, so, you, so you're, you're correct. Once we've captured that CO2 from the air, there's fundamentally two things we can do with it. The first thing you can do is you can bury it back underground. And this is a very important part of the fight against climate change. Our climate problem has occurred because we've taken carbon out of the, out of the uh, ground and put it directly into the atmosphere through the use of fossil fuel. So to fix the problem, we need to take the CO2 out of the atmosphere and put it back underground again. And that is a perfectly safe and established process. The idea of putting CO2 underground uh, into existing uh, wells, existing geological structures, it's safe and it's permanent. It stays there for literally tens of thousands of years. So why would you put CO2 back underground? Well, because it offsets permanently an emission from somewhere else. So, for example, if you're um, an airline and you're looking to stop your CO2 emission, it's very expensive for you to stop it at source. Very difficult to invent an electric plane, very expensive to replace every plane on the planet. So maybe that's not the way you decarbonize aviation. Maybe the way you decarbonize aviation is you allow a plane to continue to use fossil fuel and then instead you remove the emission that's created by the use of that fossil fuel and bury the CO2 underground. So you've achieved net zero because one plus minus one is also zero. It's another way for us to get to net zero. The second thing you can do with CO2 that you capture is you can make products. So a great example of a product that uses CO2 is fuel. If you combine CO2 and you can uh, combine it with hydrogen, you can make a hydrocarbon. So a hydrocarbon could be gasoline, it could be diesel, it could be kerosene that powers jets and aviation. And when you make a fuel in that way, your fuel is essentially carbon neutral because you pulled its carbon content out of the air in advance. 
And the beauty of that fuel is it's compatible with every existing vehicle on the planet today. You don't have to change every car, every truck, every plane, every ship. And if the fuel is carbon neutral, the vehicle is carbon neutral. So those are the two fundamental uses of the technology. Put CO2 underground to offset somebody else's emission or make a fuel or another product, fertilizer, for example, and make it carbon neutral. And with your your NU streams, do you see 90% of it going back underground, 10% of it fuels, or 50-50? How do you see that NU product stream evolving? Yeah, so the mix of, um, of, of how our technology would be used, it, it's really dependent upon how government policy and how companies choose to address their carbon footprint. And I'll give you a, a little bit of an example of that. So in the United States, we're building our first plant in the United States in partnership with Occidental and and a company called 1.5. In the U.S., the carbon policies encourage putting CO2 back underground. So the first of those use cases makes the most sense. We capture CO2, we put it underground. In Europe, uh, as an example, current policies much more favor synthetic fuels, decarbonization by changing the fuel. So in Europe, I would expect that our business will be mostly focused on making fuel. In North America, perhaps sequestration, which is the process of putting CO2 underground, perhaps sequestration becomes our core business. Well, it's great that you have the flexibility that companies can use to tailor how they use the net zero qualities of your technology. So clearly, this is super exciting and has a lot of potential. But I know some of our listeners are astute and they'll want to understand what's the total carbon footprint and energy intensity of your process of collecting a lot of air and running it through your chemical membrane and then converting it into a liquid fuel or sequestering it. What is the life cycle carbon footprint of your technology and where is that trending? Oh, it's it's enormously carbon negative. So uh, I'll talk about our first plant in, in the United States. That plant will capture a megaton of atmospheric CO2 per year. And that is net capture. Any CO2 footprint of from the plant itself is captured as part of the process. So when we talk about a one megaton plant, we mean a, a one megaton of net atmospheric CO2 removed. So the carbon footprint of the plant is very small. I mean, any uh, construction you do has a carbon footprint, but the physical carbon uh, impact of building the plant would be eliminated within a very short period of time. And our plants last for 40 to 50 years and every year removing a megaton of CO2. Um, with respect to energy use, um, so yes, you, you absolutely need energy for this process. So we power our plants from renewable electricity And the way that we do this, one of the advantages of direct air capture is because the air is everywhere, you can locate one of our plants wherever it makes the most sense. So two examples. One might be you locate the plant on top of a place where you can sequester CO2. So you don't have to worry about CO2 pipelines going from wherever the source of an emission is to wherever you're burying it underground. You you put your, your plant right on top. Another example is you put your plant where renewable electricity is available and is in surplus. So we don't take renewable energy off the grid. 
We build a renewable energy plant specifically for our purpose. And then we produce this very significant net negative carbon impact. That's a really important point. So thanks for clarifying. The two other components of whether or not these solutions are can, can be widely deployed is cost. How, does, how much does it cost? What are the economics versus traditional fuel sources? And is it is the solution really ready for prime time? Where are you in the scaling process and deployment process? Yeah, so I'm happy to address both of those. So, so firstly on cost. So we need to think of all, first of all, what problem are we trying to solve? So the problem we're trying to solve is CO2 in the atmosphere. So the cost metric that matters here is what is the cost of eliminating a CO2 molecule? And how do the various mechanisms to remove a CO2 molecule, whether it's renewable electricity, an electric car, um, flu stack capture or direct air capture, whatever the solution is, what is the cost per tonne to eliminate a CO2 molecule? So, yes, it's often said direct air capture is too expensive, but it's cheaper per tonne of CO2 than electric cars. It's cheaper than sustainable fuels. It's cheaper than building electric planes. So when you look at the problem from a per tonne of CO2 basis and you seek the lowest cost, Direct air capture plays very competitively. I don't want to say for a second, I don't want anybody to think that direct air capture is cheaper than lots of all the other forms of, of, um, uh, of removing carbon. Absolutely not. It's definitely cheaper to uh, go to renewable electricity and replace coal plants, for example. Um, but direct air capture is extremely competitive for decarbonizing transportation, which is an expensive and difficult field to address. And secondly, we don't really have a solution for eliminating yesterday's emissions, which is something we have to do to get to a safe level of, of CO2 in the atmosphere. No amount of renewable electricity, electric cars, none of those things are dealing with yesterday's emissions. And direct air capture allows you to do that too. Um, you asked about where we are with deployment. So uh, you know, our, te our technology is, is feasible, affordable, and it's available. We're building our first one megaton plant right now in the United States. Um, when we finish that first plant, uh, its cost point will be well known and understood. Future plants, of course, will drop in cost because that's always the case when, you, when you're building large scale projects. The, the second one, the third one, the fourth one become cheaper. Your supply chain is understood. Your integration procedures are well known. You've, you're basically building to an existing design. So that plant will be co-operational in about 2024. Uh, we're currently in the process of working with other candidate licensors for our technology in Canada uh, and in Europe and in several other countries around the world. So what I hope is we see by the end of this decade, we see direct air capture plants being built and going into operation in many countries around the world. You have a lot of impressive partners. You already mentioned Occidental. I saw BHP and Chevron um, as well, and Bill Gates. And Bill Gates recently wrote a book. It's hot off the press, talking about more of an all-of-the-above strategy to combat climate change. Why is Bill Gates interested in your technology? 
Yeah, so um, so Bill Gates, is, uh, as I think we all know, just, just put out a book on climate, and he's been a very significant backer of climate technologies for a while. He was one of our earliest and, and most important investors. His uh, contribution to the company has been very significant for us. Um, Mr. Gates's view is that we need, and, and we at Carbon Engineering share this view, we need all the tools that we can bring to the table to address climate change. Every month that goes by, the challenge gets harder and harder and harder. So having a suite of tools that can allow us many different ways to address climate is essential. And where Mr. Gates describes direct air capture fitting in, his estimate, I was at his book launch on Tuesday, his estimate is that technology solutions such as direct air capture are going to be required for about 10% of the world's emissions. That's today's emissions. And then dealing with legacy emissions, as I mentioned earlier on, we don't really have other solutions. So that's where, um, I think I'm paraphrasing him correctly, that's where he sees direct air capture fitting in. So he's uh, he, he um, shows that, that interest uh, both by his investment in carbon engineering, but he also buys negative emissions to offset his own carbon footprint. Clearly, there's a growing market for being able to access carbon reduction offsets and things of that nature. Uh, you mentioned you have multiple plants that you're, are being contemplated and one being built in the U.S. What is the go-to-market model? And if we have a listener that was really interested in partnering with you, what would that look like and how could they engage? Yeah, so um, Common Engineering's philosophy from day one has been that the climate problem is very big. So you need to have both technologies that can work at large scale, but you also need to have a business plan that allows fast adoption. So our business plan is that we will license our technology to partners worldwide. Uh, any partner who's interested in building a plant um, will provide them with the design, will provide them with support in engineering, in construction, uh, in operations and maintenance, and they pay us a royalty because you know, we are a business, we have to recover our costs, we have to continue to do research and development. Uh, and so our business is a royalty-based technology business, and then our partners are out raising the financing, lobbying for the right policies, working the customers in whatever jurisdiction they're in. Um, so and with respect to how, do, how, would a, how would a customer use carbon engineering and its service? So the first thing I would say to, to any large corporation, you're seeing a lot of companies that are either announcing a net zero target or that they, they are in a jurisdiction or a country that has announced a net zero target. So if you're in charge of one of those companies or in, in sustainability, you have to figure out how you're going to deliver on that target. And the way you would approach it, of course, is you'd look for, you know, where can I use renewable electricity? Where can I cut emissions at source? But then you start getting to the harder and harder sources of CO2 emissions. Now, I mentioned aviation. Let's think about construction, where cement production is a huge contributor to CO2 footprints. So to get to net zero, you will have a cost to eliminate each and every emission that you have. When your cost exceeds our cost to capture and bury, that's when you should call us up because we can eliminate any emission of any type from anywhere in the world and any moment in time at a fixed price. 
So when you look at your portfolio of solutions to address your climate footprint, the instant your, your, your cost exceeds our cost, call us up and we offer a service where we will eliminate your emissions permanently, auditably, government certified and, and measurably. Uh, and that's how you interact with, with a service like ours. A very compelling story there. You, you've got, you've done it, you do such a great job, Steve, of telling the carbon engineering story uh, and, and very holistically, too, about how your solution fits into the portfolio. I know that, in general, we face a market or public perception that it tends to favor renewables overall. You know, just intuitively, the sun shines the wind blows, why can't I harness the energy from that? What advice do you have for those of us in in the oil and gas business, you know, going through the energy transition? How do we change the narrative and start focusing on the end result goal of removing carbon from the atmosphere versus fighting against the preferences that public might have based on perception today? Yeah, I think um I, I think the first thing is is to do the mental shift that quantity of CO2 in the atmosphere is what we care about. So removing a molecule is as good as stopping a molecule going up. And that when you have that flexibility to do that, then it gives you so much more flexibility in your way to address climate change. So I, I am very strongly supportive of the shift to renewable electricity, um, but it's not going to solve every single problem we have. I'm very supportive of electric cars, but there's a billion cars in the world. How long is it going to take us to replace all of those? As I mentioned, there are sectors where we just we just have no idea how to decarbonize them. Aviation, cement production, agriculture in many areas. These are very hard things to decarbonize. So make the mental shift and say, maybe you don't decarbonize them because the problem we're trying to solve is the quantity of co2 molecules and as long as the quantity of co2 molecules stays or is reduced then we've solved the problem so thinking in those terms rather than how do i stop my emission it's really hard if you had an engineering problem of billions of separate sources of something and you were asked to stop them or collect them that's a really difficult problem to do. We may find we have jurisdictions around the world who refuse to decarbonize. And the atmosphere is a shared resource. So what do we do if a, a large emitting country refuses to decarbonize? Then, you know, we all share the problem. We need technologies that can decarbonize for them, if you like. And we can't do that at source. You can't march into a country and replace all the cars with electric cars and shut down the power plants. We need the ability to do it um, remotely and separately and deal with legacy emissions too. So that mindset shift is what I think is crucial, but it needs to be backed by government policy. We have a lot of government policy that says, if you buy an electric car, I'll give you a subsidy. I support those policies. Of course I do. Um, if you build a solar and power plant, uh, solar and wind plant, we'll give you uh, preferential financing or a tax credit. But we don't have the same policies in place for removal of CO2. And it's the same thing, removing and reducing the CO2 in the atmosphere. So it's that mindset shift. Um, our responsibility at Carbon Engineering 
is to demonstrate that our technology works, is affordable, is scalable, uh, and is accessible for anybody who wants to use it. So that's my side of the bargain. I will get on with doing that. And I would encourage your listeners to think about this idea that it's the quantity of CO2 molecules that makes that matters, not the way you either eliminate them or reduce them. Very well said. And as I've said before, CO2 molecules do not have passports, and it is a shared atmosphere. Yes, nice, nice. Very, <laughs> yeah, very exciting technology, and I'm really grateful that you took the time to explain it in a way that's so tangible and understandable for our listeners. But before we wrap up, I'd love to hear more about you, Steve. You've had a varied career before coming to carbon engineering. You weren't really in the energy biz, as best I could tell. Got a degree in mathematics and computer science from the University of Birmingham. And I can tell from your accent that's not in Alabama. (laughs) Uh, and that you worked in software, aerospace, and robotics in the past. So what drew you to carbon engineering, and how did you get here? Yeah, so I've been, I think, very, very fortunate uh, in my my career. Um, I worked for a Canadian company called McDonnell Detweiler uh, for um, 20-plus years uh, in a variety of roles. And um, it's a very exciting technology company. Um, I like to... I like to tell people that there was a time in my career at MDA where I was uh, in charge of our satellite group, putting satellites into space, and also in charge of our robotics group. And our robots um, are in on the space station. They also do brain surgery uh, and uh, clean up nuclear reactors. So, you know, I would tell people that you know my job is not it's not rocket science, it's not brain surgery, it's both. Um, as a joke, obviously. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I had a very, very enjoyable career at MDA, but fundamentally it was about commercializing technology. How do you bring technology to market? How do you raise the financing for it? How do you solve the value proposition? I'm not the smart guy who comes up with the technology. Um, you know, I'm not an engineer by background. I'm not a chemist. Uh, we have really smart people at Carbon Engineering who come up with the, the technology. My role is to try and figure out how to bring it to market. And for Carbon Engineering, uh, I joined three years ago, and the company was really at that transition point. It had developed the technology, but it needed to find a way to bring it to market, how to tell the story about what the technology could do, how to find the right strategic partners that could help you grow, um, how to how to drive down the cost um, and, and reduce the risk of technological deployment. So uh, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to join the company um, and and try and help them solve that problem. And I mean, it goes without saying, you know, I <laughs> I had such a fun career at MDA, but when I joined Carbon Engineering, my my kids and my my friends were like, "Wow, this is fantastic! What you're doing now, this is this is really important." So I think the mission of the company is is really very important. All the employees feel that. Um, they, they feel the responsibility of, of needing to develop this technology and make it available. Uh, and I'm just, I'm very proud to be part of that. Definitely connected to the higher purpose of saving our planet for future generations. And your background is really well aligned around bringing leading edge technologies to market. So it's not just rocket science and brain surgery. You're now saving the planet, Steve. So <laughs> you're our hero. <laughs> 
I really appreciated this conversation and I've learned a lot. Uh, I've enjoyed hearing your perspective and your insights. Before we go, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave for our listeners? You know, I, I, would, I think I'd say two things. The first thing I would say is that we have the ability to fix climate change. We can do it in ways that aren't massively disruptive. We can do it in ways that preserve access to energy, which is essential for economies. It's essential for the development of, the, uh, of, of, of people across the globe. It's possible for us to do this. It's a question of choice. We've seen in the last 12 months how the world has reacted to the, to the pandemic that we have today. We all wish that we'd done something about the pandemic in advance. We'd developed vaccines. We'd put processes in place. We have the choice still to do something about climate change and fix it before the problem becomes really, really serious. And it's a choice. So it's not that we can't solve the problem. We just have to make the choice to solve the problem. The second thing that I would say is there are many ways that we can address climate change. Buy an electric car, reduce your carbon footprint, don't fly, replace electric, uh, uh, generate electric planes, whatever they may be. There's no right or wrong answer at all. All of these solutions are needed. Um, so look and encourage and learn about the various solutions. Realize that the problem can be solved and then lobby for the choice to be made by our politicians, our CEOs, to fix it, because we can fix this. I'm with you on this journey. I appreciate that, and I, I would love to make that choice. Thanks for your time, Steve. I've enjoyed our conversation. I know our listeners will, too. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on Remove CO2 from the Air, one megaton at a time. The transcript of this episode is now available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes. 